Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Constellation revises billion-dollar deal with Gallo. The Conservatives win large majority in the UK general election. What does it mean for the drinks business? California producers Cundy and Vintage Wine Estates sue insurers for 19 million US dollars over smoke taint. Champagne producer Theano and Chilean producer Tabali team up to make sparkling wine. And as ever, our wine of the week. So let's start with our week in wine. And Katie, you went to an interesting event last week. Yes, and this is more food-related than wine-related, but as we know, food and wine are intrinsically related, so I think it's relevant. Uh, It's Conversations at Copia, uh, kind of a new live talk series that brings together pioneers within the world of food to share their stories of positive change, uh, hosted at the Culinary Institute of America at Copia in Napa, California. And a friend of mine, Mariam Ahmed, spearheaded the program, and my hat's off to her because it really was a fascinating discussion. And I'm not technically part of the restaurant world, uh, though there's obviously a lot of crossover with the wine biz, but I didn't really know what to expect going into it, and I was very pleased. So the one I attended was entitled Setting the Equity Table, which posed the question, where is social change in the food and beverage industry coming from? The panel was made up of chefs, some of whom also head up programs and nonprofit organizations that use food to help the community. And it was Tracy Desjardins, who is a top chef and has been part of the San Francisco food scene for 25 years, who said that her biggest regret was that often in her kitchen over the years, she would hire only white males because they were the most qualified. And another point was raised about tipping and how the practice makes it difficult to keep equity among restaurant workers. So of course, all this got me thinking about Batonage, the Women in Wine conference that I'm helping organize in 2020. And also, if we have something like this set up for the wine industry, sort of these uh, conversations and, you know, inviting the, the audience to really partake as well. And I'm not aware of anything, but perhaps some of you, our listeners, do. So if so, please let me send me a note because I would love to look it up. For me, something completely different. Um, I was teaching yesterday, um, teaching the new D3 for the first time, which is the large Wines of the World unit in the Dewey City's diploma. And yesterday was the first day uh, that, that unit was taught in the way that it's uh, now set up, because it's been revised since I last taught it, and it's now much more discussion-based, getting students to contribute to classes rather than the educators simply lecturing them. It helps students think about the theory for themselves, how to apply their knowledge rather than just stating facts. And in the exam, they have to apply and explain information. So this new teaching format is very useful. And it was a lot of fun too, as all the students have different backgrounds, different roles inside or outside the wine industry, and different areas of expertise. So all these different contributions means that there's a lot of information to share and to learn from. And learning should always be active and not passive. And you said you covered Bordeaux and Burgundy in this session. So any key takeaways you gathered from the students in this interactive format? Yes, we had a very interesting discussion about uh, Bordeaux in particular and its strengths, its weaknesses, its opportunities and its threats. So uh, a structured way of organising an essay, again, thinking about the theory. They call that a SWOT analysis. Exactly. And um, lots of strengths were identified, but also weaknesses. And talking about the market, um, different export markets, China as, as an opportunity and a threat. And also that Bordeaux doesn't really do a good enough job at the entry level side of the market. Its entry-level wines aren't quite good enough. 
and we did taste one $11 red Bordeaux, which was pretty dreadful. But then when we got to the high-end wines, um, there's some really spectacular stuff. So there is a bit of a chasm between um, entry-level Bordeaux and premium and super premium, which they need to address. Interesting stuff. Now, on with the news. Two US-based drinks giants, Constellation and Gallo, have been trying to strike a deal in which Constellation sell many of their lower-end brands to Gallo. The first projected deal was valued at $1.7 billion, but was delayed by the US Federal Trade Commission in May, amid concerns that the deal would make Gallo's dominance of the market uncompetitive. Now, the deal has been revised and is valued at $1.1 billion, with some of Constellation's brands taken out of the deal, including Cook's California Champagne, J. Roger American Champagne, and Paul Masson Grand Ambre Brandé, which between them sell 5 million cases a year. Constellation will still try to sell those brands, but to companies other than Gallo. Also in a separate deal, Constellation announced the $130 million sale of Nobilo, the large New Zealand producer. These sales are part of an ongoing strategy at Constellation to restructure their business model, moving away from high-volume, inexpensive wines and focusing more on premium brands such as Robert Mondavi, Mount Vida, Schrader, and spirits producers such as High West Whiskey. So this deal is interesting because amid all the talk of the trend towards premiumization, this one suggests quite the opposite in the case of Gallo, that the lower end is alive and well. That said, Gallo has also played very successfully in the entry-level categories for a long time, so it's not as though they are shifting gears by any means. Additionally, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, Gallo also purchased premium Napa Valley winery Palmire, so they're still building momentum in that arena as well. Could be that they are just so big that trends don't apply to their buying strategies. They just want everything. But it is interesting that they've been entering the premium market. That's quite different from where they've traditionally been uh, centred. Whereas Constellation has been a bit less focused in its strategy and it keeps chopping and changing. So here they are going back to premiumization, see if they can be successful. Because they found it difficult with some of these lower end brands, I think, to, to focus on them and to make money from them. Now turning to politics, on Thursday, UK voters went to the polls to choose the next government. All sorts of scenarios were predicted, from a conservative majority to a hung parliament, with the most immediate and important consequence of the result being what happens next with Brexit. So to some surprise, the Conservatives, led by Boris Johnson, won a large and significant majority of 80 seats, meaning that, in effect, Boris Johnson has carte blanche to do what he likes as Prime Minister. In all likelihood, the UK will now leave the EU at the end of January on the terms of the provisional deal agreed in September. However, this is simply the end of the beginning, as protracted negotiations will start between the UK and the EU to create a long-standing trade deal between the two. As yet, no one can say with any certainty what that will look like. So lots of questions. Uh, What we're going to focus on are the consequences for the UK wine industry. The immediate response uh, from the industry was to call for lower taxes and duty on wine, as wine in the UK is far more expensive than most of its European counterparts. And a closing up of the European market could lead to further price increases. Uh, Boris Johnson has mixed his hard stance on Brexit with populist promises of money and investment. It will be interesting to see if his populism extends to help keep wine prices down. If not, the UK wine industry may change radically. It will become difficult for supermarkets to maintain sub-five-pound prices for European wine, 
more expensive wine may, may lead to UK consumers finally be willing to pay more for wine, or it may push them into other categories. Of course, it won't just be wine that will be affected. Exports of British goods such as whiskey and gin may see significant price increases and damage their brands. And to complicate matters further, if Northern Ireland, which was sold out by Johnson in his deal with the EU, remains attached to the customs union, then Northern Irish goods moving into the UK could become more expensive. In all this speculation, it remains to be seen what deal the UK and the EU eventually strike. One thing we know about Johnson, what he says and what he does are two completely different things. Yes, and also Amazon released their Compass Road wine brand in the UK, previously launched in Germany, as reported by Wind Up Weekly, continuing their renewed push into wine retail. The range, which includes Merlot, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Riesling, and Rosé from Grenache, sells for twice the amount than in Germany. The regular retail price stands at £36 for a six-pack, compared to €19 in Germany. Although, this being Amazon, UK consumers can currently buy a six-pack for the discounted price of £27. So if Brexit does go through, and it appears that it will, Amazon could have issues yet again with executing a successful online wine retail strategy. The fallout from the 2017 fires, which devastated wine country in Sonoma and Napa, continues. Two large producers, Kundi and Vintage Wine Estates, are suing their insurers for a combined 19 million U.S. dollars for refusing to cover damage caused by the fires and subsequent smoke. Kundi claimed that they suffered $7 million worth of damage, while Vintage Wine Estates, who own and manage many wineries across the state, are suing for $12 million. They both argue that the damage and losses were covered in their all-risk insurance coverage. However, the insurers, surprise, surprise, disagree, stating that the damage caused by the smoke occurred in the vineyard, for which they are not liable, rather than in the winery. Cundy argues otherwise, saying that all the grapes had been picked and that wines suffered smoke damage while in the winery, making them impossible to sell. They also stated that Cundy and Vintage Wine Estates were not the only producers to suffer losses incurred by the fires and smoke damage, but smaller producers were not in the position to fight the insurers. Believing that the insurers are simply refusing to pay out, Cundy want to set a precedent. The case is scheduled to appear in court on December 20th. Fire might seem a clear-cut natural disaster, you can see the effects very clearly, but the difficulty of analysing damage caused by fires and smoke is harder than one might think. Not just how smoke taint potentially affects wines, which is still a lot of research being done into, but when that damage happens and what the exact consequences are in terms of the wines themselves, but also the substantial financial implications. So how do Cundi and Vintage Wine Estates prove that the damage was done in the winery and not in the vineyard? That's what the insurers are wondering. Well, no matter what, it's going to be a hard, long fight against the insurers, even with something that was definitely caused by the natural disaster in the case of the 2014 earthquake. I know that many wineries struggled with their insurance companies to cover the damage. So it might be just cut and dry, but the insurance companies are still going to fight back. And I'm currently involved in a, a battle with my insurance company for my teeth and dentist fees. Insurers do not like to give out money. Welcome to the U.S. As the regular listener to the pod will know, both of us love a bottle of bubbles. So we were excited this week to learn of a new project in Chile, 
which is a joint venture between champagne producer Theano and local producer Taboli. They're based in Lamari, in the far north of the country, in near desert conditions, which may seem too warm for sparkling wine, but coastal vineyards are cooled by the Pacific Ocean. Also unusually for Chile, there are limestone soils. Taboli's chief winemaker, Felipe Muller, felt the conditions were suitable for sparkling wine, but having no experience of making bubbles, he turned to Champagne for help. Theano were willing to set up a joint venture, but spent three years tasting base wines before formally committing. Theano's technical director visits annually, and Muller reported that he has had to make a lot of changes in his approach to winemaking, including increasing yields to lessen the fruitiness of the base wines. 30,000 bottles of the first release were made, which retails for the equivalent of 22 US dollars. Well, when we were in Chile, we saw that there were a lot of small producers who were making good quality sparkling wine. It was a new trend and perhaps not one large enough to have left the country yet. But we definitely felt the quality of the wines meant that there was great potential for sparkling wine there and that comes from cool coastal sites. So no surprise that a good producer like Tabali has followed suit and their presence on the international market might mean more interest in Chilean bubbles. We also know from experience that uh, Chile, when partnering with French producers, had, has yielded some pretty high quality results. We remember our friend Julio Donoso, who partnered with Andre Ostertag of Domaine Ostertag in France uh, to create uh, an, an incredible Pinot Noir brand called Monsicano. Yeah, he was very scathing about Chileans' unwillingness to learn from um, high quality international producers, but um, good producers like Tabuli are an exception to that, and I certainly think um, having input from Champagne will help raise the quality and maybe will have an impact on other sparkling wine in Chile as well. I certainly look forward to uh, trying this wine. Perhaps in a future Wine of the Week. And now for our Wine of the Week, which is Matthew... Well, this is very exciting because it's a wine that's quite hard to get hold of. So we've had the rare opportunity to try and taste it. And also because we're with a dear friend of ours, Frida, who is from France and is going to help us with the pronunciations. And so the grape variety Frida is... Mondeuse. So I hope you got that. Mondeuse, a grape variety native to Savoie. But the wine is actually from California. And so very, very rare to find this grape variety, Mondeuse, here in California, and the producer is Jamie Motley, and it's from Santa Maria Valley, the 2016 vintage. That's right, so the reason we have this bottle is that Frida and I went to a tasting at PAX in Sebastopol, California. Uh, They have a nice tasting room in the Barlow, and on Frida's uh, recommendation, actually, we purchased both the rosé and then uh, the Mondu's red wine. So we've held on to this. The the rosé went down pretty quickly within a couple of weeks, but this one we've held on to for about a year and a half, so very exciting to actually try it. And Jamie Motley, she's a pretty cool producer here in California. She's worked with the likes of Pax Molly. She's worked with Raj Parr. And she's just really kind of mixing it up with the great varieties that she's working with. So exciting stuff to try. I hadn't tried this before. And if for those of you who know Savoie Mondeuse, this is very similar in style. It's kind of got that whole cluster or carbonic feel to it, quite light-bodied, low in alcohol, 12.3%, slightly purple in colour, so it's that really um, light-bodied, really youthful fruit, not fruity, but um, attractive and 
uh, floral style. Very appealing. And we just had it with a croque monsieur, which is a perfect pairing. Yep, it's $38 and sold out, uh, sold out pretty quickly. So it's uh, a hot commodity. Uh, so if you want to get a bottle, I recommend that you get it right on release. And so Frida, what did you think of the wine? It was delicious. Merci. Santé. Santé. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gohm. And this is the last one for 2019. So we're going to take a two-week hiatus, and we will be back with In Your Feed on in January. So join us then for another wind-up. Cheerio! Cheerio!